Go to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one. If you got your Bibles, Second Peter chapter one. It will start in verse one. Just out of curiosity, when we were uh, speaking to the jaw respiratory system and the clogged artery, was that anyone in the room in particular? If you had any of those issues, raise your hand just so I know. Yeah? Okay, okay. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, testimonies. We want to make sure we know about them. If any, any, any miracle that takes place, I just wanted to ask to see if we could find that out. Thank you, Father. It is finished, he said on the cross. Amen. Okay, so let's read in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has been given to us, has, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. Self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. He's talking about putting off his body or his death, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Okay. There's a lot going on there. I just wanted to read the whole passage so we understand the whole, whole context and the thought. I want us to go back to verse 9. So he mentions all these virtues, qualities of a Christian, and then he says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So there's a principle here that I want to cover to make sure that we lay necessary groundwork to start. That anybody, he says, who lacks any Christian virtue, says lacks them because of one thing, he's blind to the fact that he has been cleansed from his old sins. So He's trying to say that if you don't understand you're forgiven, not just forgiven, but washed, sanctified, justified, made new. If you don't understand that fact, you're always going to struggle with sin. It's, it's always going to feel like a battle to you. So he says, if you want to have these qualities, you have to understand first that you have been cleansed from your, old, from your old sins. Now, if we jump back again to verse 4, previously it talks about having knowledge of him. Then it says that by his knowledge have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. 
So there's a, some, some really cool promises here that, that are given to us. And then it says that through those promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. This is a beautiful, beautiful promise right here. Partakers of God's nature. And then it says, having escaped, past tense, just like he mentioned later, have been cleansed from your old sins. Then he says earlier, you have escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Now, before I move on here, I'm going to cover a little bit of review. We talked about uh, last week about casting down what some translations call vain imaginations, replacing thoughts with good thoughts, that the strongholds that we defeat are actually thought patterns. We talked about how the way that you think really is the greatest ally or enemy, depending on um, what you believe. And part of that was talking about uh, purity and what that looks like for a person's life and their thoughts being established in purity. We talked about learning to see everyone as God sees them, and that's a key part of, part of purity. And so what I want to get into this week has to do with the belief, uh, and this, is, this would be a negative belief, that sin or lust or corruption, whatever the word is, is still a part of our nature. I want to cover that first because that is a lie. You have been cleansed from your old sins. New Testament reiterates this frequently. Colossians says you have put off the old man with his deeds in chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians 4 says you have been created new. It says that you have put off the old man. You have put on the new man. It says that your new man is created in the image of the one who created him which would be God. You're already made in the image of God. And then in Galatians 5, it says that he, those who are Christ's have put off or have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires. That's one of my favorites in Galatians 5 because it makes it very clear if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, have made, made him your Lord and you're following him, it says the flesh has been crucified. Past tense. And together with the flesh, all of its passions and desires are gone. That's the biblical promise given to us. Now, it is very common for the average Christian to take ownership of what you may call a victim identity, which is, I have a sinful nature, I have this struggle, I have that struggle. We start to identify with flaws or shortcomings that the Bible says are actually not a part of our nature anymore. The only reason they feel like they are is simply because we believe that they are. It's all about how we think. And so that's why it says that what we stand against is the wiles of the devil in Ephesians 6, which essentially means that that word wiles means trickery and deceit. It is lying to a person to make them believe something that's false. That is the strategy of the enemy. If he gets you to believe a lie, it can be real to you personally, even though in reality it's not, spiritually speaking. And so that's why what we stand against, he says the, the first part of the armor of God, he says, is to gird yourself about with the belt of truth. What is that? As long as every part of your life is fastened with truth, that's how you stand against these lies. So we got to have truth. And so specifically what I want to mention here is where he says that you have escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Now, I talked about lust a little bit last Sunday. And I'm going to clarify some things. The word lust, most of the time, at least from our understanding, is used in like a, uh, like a sexual immorality type context, right? However, the word lust doesn't actually mean that. It's applied to that context in some cases, but the word lust in the Greek essentially means a insatiable, selfish craving for anything, whatever it is. Um, when 1 Timothy 6, when it says that the love of money is the root of all evil, that's an example. It's a craving. Sometimes it's translated as greed, but it means an intense, 
an intense craving. But specifically, it's, it's a selfish craving. So what, what lust does is it creates a covetousness, a desire, a craving in a person that erases in their mind everyone but themselves. In other words, it becomes all about me. That's what lust really is. That's how it shows itself. And sometimes that shows itself in a sexual context, and that's why most of the time that we'll, we'll hear it used in that context. And so we will cover that briefly. Um, but primarily what I want to talk about is if it says you've escaped the corruption of this world that is through lust, then you have to be delivered from lust in order to be delivered from the corruption. So let's go real quick to uh, 1 John. Um, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's right after 2 Peter. Next book over. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, I love this passage, but I want to focus first on verse 17, and then we'll, we'll work our way backwards. The world is passing away and the lust of it. Now, in 2 Peter, where it says that you've escaped the corruption, that word corruption in Greek, the way that it's used in the New Testament, essentially means a decay, a fading away, a deterioration of something. So just like when leaves from trees fall down and they dry up, they shrivel, they turn to dirt, that is what we sometimes call decomposing. That is a form of decay. It's also a form of corruption. It means for something to deteriorate. So he's saying the world is deteriorating, and so is the lust of it. Now, what this means for us is that to be under the bondage of corruption for a person means to live a life that is winding down and is deteriorating. So the reason why people can get sick, the reason why people can grow old and die, the reason why people can get into a dysfunction that leads to chaos and, and turmoil, all of that is are manifestations of the corruption of the world, that things run down. It's even a scientific law. We call it the second law of thermodynamics, which essentially means everything is on a clock winding down, which actually, believe it or not, totally contradicts evolution. Everything's devolving, not evolving. And so um, that essentially tells us that if you are in Christ, you're delivered from corruption, which means your life becomes a progress instead of a degression. Right? Instead of devolving, we're actually growing. The Bible says that the spirit is renewed day by day. Physically speaking, yes, we grow old. This physical body, Peter called it his tent, is eventually going to die and be replaced. We understand that. But what I, wanna, what I want us to understand is that being a Christian, being delivered from corruption, means we're also delivered from everything that causes decay. And included in that is lust. So he says, if lust causes decay, then the opposite of lust, which would produce life, would be a complete and utter selflessness, essentially. So the number one, one of the number one commands Jesus gave to believers was to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Denying yourself is essential. It's, it's an integral piece of, of the Christian life because this means I'm denying every desire which is actually consuming me, every selfish desire, and I'm being brought into a selflessness that will be progress for me and everyone around me instead of a degression, instead of a, a de-evolution, a decay and a corruption. And so we got to realize that according to 1 John, like it says here, that 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is what is of the world. So God wants us, if we're delivered from corruption, to be delivered from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Kind of three categories of, of, of sin or temptation, if you will. And I won't get into details as far as the, the distinction between the three. Uh, there's not any reason right now to go that direction, at least yet. But lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'll, I'll just start by saying the pride of life is something that's very common. It essentially means, it's what causes humanism. It's that man is God. You can live however you want. You can be a self-made person. It's all about you. That's kind of what the pride of life looks like. Now, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, I'm just going to group them together for, for now, has to do with the selfish craving that is all about feeding, feeding the flesh. Now, just for the sake of your understanding, there's a distinction made in Scripture between the flesh and the spirit. All over the New Testament, it talks about there's the realm, if you will, of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. Those are the two differences, and the Christian has a choice to live in one of those two realms. The goal for us, we act, I actually mentioned it during worship, the goal for us is to live in the spirit, which is life, eternal, but we can also choose to live in the flesh, which leads to corruption. So whenever you sow to the flesh, the Bible says, whenever you invest in the flesh, it leads to decay. You invest in the spirit, leads to life or progress. And so, um, simply put, the word flesh in Greek means almost exactly what we think it says. It just means carnality. It means the, the muscles on your body. The actual word means a stake. That's, that's what it is, what the flesh is. Now, what it's trying to uh, infer with that whole teaching of the flesh is that just like your body naturally grows old and decays, if you do just what the flesh wants, you'll, you're actually brought into its decay and you pass away with it. So if I make decisions that are just to feed the flesh, the natural result is corruption or decay. So if I'm in the spirit, the opposite of that, that means if I make decisions or I'm, I'm dictated, directed by the spirit, it always leads to life. And so what I want us first to understand with, with now that being clarified is that lust itself is a selfish craving that naturally produces decay. It just produces destruction in our lives. To be delivered from corruption is to be delivered from selfishness. If the command of the gospel is to deny yourself, then denying yourself is also denying lust, which means I'm automatically walking in the spirit if I make that decision. And so the, if you're just to basically summarize everything, even Jesus' command to love as I have loved you, what actually defines the love of God is a selfless, unconditional love. I'm doing what I'm doing for your sake and not my own, Speaking not a single word in my own defense, but it's all about loving you. That's, that's what God's love is. That is utter selflessness. That is deliverance from lust. And so the opposite of lust is love. It's one or the other. What, what, what I want to talk about this morning and what I mentioned I would go to last Sunday is that there are a lot of times when we misunderstand love, take, and then as a result, kind of take possession of a form of lust that we think is just human and normal, and it actually is kind of brought into our relationships, our marriages, our own interactions with people, and we don't really realize it. We don't realize the destructive effect that it has. Now, most of the time when we think of lust, we think of like, you know, sexual promiscuity and greed and, you know, that kind of thing. But what I'm trying to say is that if we're to be completely delivered from lust, 
which is to be so free from corruption that no decision you make has any decaying effect on your life. Then that means being completely delivered from self. That's the call of the Bible. That's the call of, of, of Jesus, of Christianity. So that means, and I'll give you an example. Let's take, um, I'm actually going to use, there's a certain translation of the Bible that um, I mostly disagree with. I'm going to use it as an example here. Um, I think I think it's the NLT New Living Translation. I don't have you know a ton of beef with it, but this is just going to use it as an example. So, First Corinthians seven. There's a few verses that talk about well, the whole chapter is about marriage, but specifically like the first five verses are key principles. Where Paul says, "Here's a command I've received from the Lord, and here's also my personal opinion." He includes both about how a husband should treat his wife and vice versa. One of the things he says in King James Version, this is like in verse three, he says that. Wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Then he says, and the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, there's a way to explain that, which I will get into, but the New Living Translation translates the verse this way. A husband should fulfill, or excuse me, verse 4 before I quote this. The next verse says that a husband should render to his wife the affection due her, likewise the wife to her husband. That's verse 4. Now, verse 4 in the New Living Translation says... The husband should fulfill his wife's needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. That is not what it says in the original language when Paul wrote it. Now, the idea is that that translation, as it's written in that verse, creates the impression that we actually have a part of us that requires service from another person, which is lust. In a, on a small scale, because what is lust? It is a craving that is about self, it's self-consuming, and it kind of sort of negates everyone else's uh, well-being, if you will. That's an extreme sense, but when we're talking about just marriage and relationships and our human interactions with people, if I live my life believing I have needs, I'm essentially saying there's a part of me that craves some kind of service, some kind of gratification, and I require it in order to be content. That is what drives lust. So you can take, again, even some translations of the Bible that make the impression when it talks about marriage that there are certain things that you need. Now, when I'm talking about needs, I'm not talking about the fact that you have to eat food and drink water to survive. That is a basic need that, that just is talking about survival. That's not the need I'm talking about. The needs I'm referring to are those which would supposedly lead to our happiness or contentment. So, for example, if I believe that I require a certain treatment, certain kind of treatment in a marriage, in order to be happy, I'm attaching my well-being to someone else's obedience and faithfulness when it's supposed to be attached solely to Christ. So when you look at Philippians 4, for example, Paul gives an example of this. This is outside of a marriage context, but he says in Philippians 4 that you, he, he talks about receiving a gift. They supported him financially. They gave him a financial gift. That's the context. And he, he writes in the end of his letter thanking them for their gift. And he says, I, this is my paraphrase. He says, I greatly appreciate this gift that you've given. And then he says, not that I speak in regard to need, because I have learned in all things to be content in whatever state I am. And then he says, I've learned how to be content or happy when I'm abased, when I'm abounding, when I'm prospering, or when I'm suffering need. So he says, this has nothing to do with my contentment or happiness. I appreciate the gift you've given, 
but I did not need that gift to maintain content or happy. So he's saying as a principle, the Christian life, he also reiterates this in Hebrews 13, where he says that be content with such things as you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is like in verse five of Hebrews 13. I think it is in, in everything, whatever state you're in, he says, be content, which means because Philippians 4:19 says, God supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory. He is my completion. He is my contentment. So I should not require anything from a person in addition to that to make me content. This is specifically about your security and your happiness. Yes, you have basic needs for survival. I get that. But service from your spouse, if you're married, should not be something that you need to be happy or content within that marriage. Because that is not basic survival needs. That's just talking about what you think you deserve, what you think you need, so on and so forth. And so, scripturally speaking, if lust is service to self, in order to be gratified, in order to be content, then self-denial means in every relationship I'm in, my human interaction with people is defined by the fact that I need nothing from you to be happy, but I magnanimously give because it's giving out of what I receive from Christ. If I need you to give something to me in order to give back, that is a form of lust because it means I require something. So if we're trying to say we are destroying lust, we're being delivered from the corruption of this world, then that means if I'm going to be totally free from that, I need to go into every relationship with the stance, the groundedness, and the simple fact that I am content in Christ, I'm complete in Christ, He has fulfilled all my needs, He is my joy, my supply, everything that I could ever possibly need or want. So in my interaction with you as a person, all that I can do is give. Because if I need nothing from you, then there's nothing you can do to me that would perturb that happiness or contentment. But it also means I'm free to give without ever needing anything in return. That is how Jesus lived as our model. For example, we use Judas as an example. Judas Iscariot, I've preached on this before, but Jesus chose Judas Iscariot, served him, invested in him, taught him, loved him, knowing the whole time he would be betrayed by him. The average person, if you were to, like, just think about, well, if we think about a marriage context, for example, let's say God, and God actually has done this. Hosea is an example. That's a whole other story. I may, I may get to that in a minute. But if God were to call you, let's say you're single, God were to call you to go marry a person or to invest in a relationship, and he told you beforehand they are going to stab you in the back, but I want you to do it anyway. Would we say yes to that? Most people, absolutely not. No way. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did for Judas. Exactly. Now, this does not mean that is the call on every Christian to marry someone that they know is going to try to divorce them or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. The point is, Jesus, with that example, demonstrated something important, extremely important, about what it means to actually love and what it means to be free from lust, which means complete self-denial. And really self-denial means there is no natural gratification required for my contentment because all the contentment I would ever need comes from Christ. So then what uh, this generally looks like in certain cases 
in marriages when it comes to, uh, you know, what First Corinthians 7, that's actually in the sexual context where it's talking about that kind of service to your spouse. And it actually is not, it's not saying, again, NLT says, fulfill your husband's needs. It, the Bible doesn't actually say that in the original language. What it says is, give to your spouse the affection that is due, not that they need. Huge difference there. Now, if you look at Romans 13, let's actually go there real quick. This is what we're going to look at next as far as how this plays out in our lives. Romans 13, and let's read in verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Ah, let's actually go to verse 7. I want to get some context. Let's jump back to verse 7. It says, Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Give honor to him who is due it. Then he says, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love, for he who loves has fulfilled the law. Now, when it says, Owe no one anything, the, the, if you look at the literal Greek translation, it says, be bound to no man, yet love them. What does that look like? In our, in our vernacular, layman's terms, it was trying to say, is live freely loving everyone, but be bound to no one in that do not attach your well-being to someone else's good treatment of you. Because if I require you to treat me a certain way for me to be content, I have bound myself to you. I've made myself a slave to you. If I make myself a slave to you, I can't freely love and thus fulfill this commandment, which is to freely love. So in order to love as Jesus calls, I cannot be bound to any person. Now, especially in marriages, the weddings that we do, the, the vows that people read, not, I'm not against any of that, but the point is like, it's very common for when people get married to assume, I am so attached to you that it's like they make themselves a slave to the person, that for this marriage to work, there is something you need to do for me. Which is totally contrary to the model that Jesus gave us, which was he invested in his people knowing they were going to betray him because he wanted to demonstrate a love that would inspire us to love like he does. Not because he needed something from us. The Bible says about God that he doesn't need worship from anyone. It actually says he can't be worshipped with men's hands. Believe it or not, Acts 17 says that. It says that God is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He, he, you, can, you can sing and lift your hands all you want, but the Bible says he doesn't need your worship. In fact, it even says he can't be worshipped with your hands because he doesn't need anything from you. So if we're to then mimic that, you go into a relationship, If again, using marriage as an example, if I'm marrying a person, I'm saying... I'm giving my life as God gave his, uh, Jesus gave his life for me to love regardless of how you treat me because I don't need you to be content. However, if we go into relationships with the idea that there is some kind of need I have, some kind of requirement for gratification, I will live my life a slave to your treatment when I know that you're a fallible human being because everyone is and I'm destined to be hurt, disappointed, and offended because of a decision that I made to allow myself to be under your power. 
And that is totally what, okay, when he's saying, I want you to be free from self, when Jesus is saying, deny yourself, he's actually setting you free from the capacity to be hurt by people. It is, it's not like, it's not some strange, like legalistic, obligatory, you got to love people. That's not what it is. He's saying, this is about freedom. This is about you being totally free from the corruption of lust that is at work in most people's hearts. If you want to be freed from corruption, you have to be freed from lust, which is to be freed from self or the requirement for yourself to be served. That's what love is. That's what it means to love. So another uh, way that this shows up in relationships is that we, okay, this, okay. This is going to get a little bit controversial, maybe for some of you. (laughs) So if you look at, Man, okay. I'm going to use, for the sake of you being equipped in your understanding, the LGBTQ agenda as an example. We love everyone. I'm going to go there. Yes. Somebody's got it. Okay. Now, what is the common, common argument? I don't want to call it an argument, but the, the common defense for that agenda is, and we hear this very often, I've talked to people. I talked to a guy in Walmart one time. About, about this in, in, during street evangelism one time, and I'll use him as an example of what he said. And he basically was trying to tell me not to judge him for his uh, you know, sexual orientation and that he was born that way. That's just right, his nature, he, all the time. This is what we hear. Now, they are actually correct when they say they were born that way. Here's why. Everyone is born into this world a sinner. Everyone. All of us are born with a sinful nature that shows itself in a variety of ways, a diversity of ways. Just like a person can be born with a tendency for promiscuity, you can be born with a tendency for homosexuality in the same way. Because we're all born sinners. What Christians sometimes fail to understand is that the desires that you are born with are actually not the ones that God gave you. Now, an extreme case is like homosexuality, because we'll look at that, those of us who, if we're to consider ourselves more conservative, if we're to look at that, or more traditional, if you will, even though it's just biblical, if we were to look at that and just say, that is a desire that we know is not of God, and you should repent from that. But then... We take an average guy who is like, I have a really high sex drive, and I got married, so I deserve this much service. I should get this much service because it's just how I am. What are you doing? You're taking an inborn desire that has been corrupted by sin, calling it your identity, while also expecting the person who has homosexual attraction to change their desires when you think you don't have to change yours. Okay, so the desires you're born with are not the ones God gave you. The whole point of walking with Jesus and submitting ourselves to the word of God is so that we understand I actually am malfunctioning before I know Christ. It is not me. So I conform myself to the word to actually untwist my desires because before they're twisted, they're perverted. 
Putting aside homosexuality or the LGBTQ, whatever, sometimes we think that's like the extreme. It is exactly the same as you believing you need something because it's your desire. Exactly the same. It is no different. It's the same manifestation of a sinful nature that we've identified ourselves with just because we name one thing a sin and another thing not a sin. So this, in, in, in marriages, it happens all the time. Sometimes, for women in a lot of cases, it's like there's emotional needs, right? It's like there's a certain, I got to have heart to heart. There's got to be connection. There's, there's, there's emotional needs that I have, right? It is the same thing. If you believe that God made you with a particular need and that you should have that gratified because it is your need, you're assuming that the desires you were born with are you, but they're not necessarily. Which means every desire that I have, I have to, I have to approach my Christian life and my walk with God with the understanding that every single desire I have before I knew Jesus was twisted by sin. Now that I'm a Christian, every single one of my desires has to be untwisted and rectified. Which means any longing that I have, if it does not drive me to love selflessly, it is not of God. Untwisting your desires means God produces in you a drive to love people, not to be served by them. So if, if, if we take the emotional need and we say, I, I, you know, I deserve this, I need this. That would then assume that God gave me a desire for self to be gratified. Which, when you talk about it that way, of course, it doesn't sound like a godly desire. But if then God changes that desire in, I know that I appreciate connection with my husband, for example, or wife. So I'm going to let that desire become something that motivates me to love even more. And that desire is channeled into something that motivates me to serve instead of something that expects me to receive. That's one example of a desire being untwisted, right? So we really got to think about this because this means that, you know, for a lot of guys, it's their sex drive, just being real. There's a book called Every Man's Battle, right? I actually have a really, I don't like calling it Every Man's Battle. Because it says you've been delivered from lust. That's what it says. It is not you. Don't think that your sex drive is you. Because it's not. Yes, every human being does have that desire, but it's meant to be used for a particular God-centered, love-centered purpose. And the goal should then be, okay, if this desire is self-focused, God did not give it to me. Well, he gave you the original desire, but it was perverted by sin, right? It is not how God, it's not in the condition God wants it to be in. So I think about that and I say, okay, how can this desire become something that motivates me to love instead of to have an expectation to receive? And you submit yourself to the word and you, you, you meditate on scripture and you can pray. And for me, simply when I was 16 years old and 15, 16, first started walking with Jesus and made the decision to make him Lord, this was one of the first things that I at least understood to a degree and the, I remember the one thing that I asked, I just said, God, I want you to make me into, man, into a man after your own heart. I want you to make me just like you. And that was my prayer. That was all I really could pray for a while because I didn't really know a whole lot about prayer. I didn't know what to pray. So I was just like, the Bible says I'm supposed to be like Jesus. So I'll pray that. And now what you're building in you, in, in that case, what you're feeding 
is a desire to become like Jesus. And there is an actual physiological, neurological change that takes place physically in your body. Your brain, if you believe you have needs, will arrange itself neurologically in such a way that you will always look for those needs to be fulfilled. You'll crave it. You'll actually believe you need it to survive or you'll need it to be happy. And that's a total lie. If I submit myself to the word and understand my spirit, soul, and body, we're all designed to function a certain way. I yield myself to the word of God and say, this is who I was created to be. This is how I was designed to live. I was designed to love being selfless. That's how God wants me to be. That's how he originally created me. So if I understand that, I deny myself and say, you know what? God didn't give me that desire. That's not who I was made to be. I should love being selfless. I should love completely laying down my life because that's in the nature of God. And if it's in the nature of God, the Bible says I'm a partaker of the divine nature. So his nature is in me. If I believe that, you start to think that way, talk that way, pray that way, and it will actually change your neurological makeup so your brain then actually is convinced that this is who you are. And you live that way. That's why the Bible says when you renew your mind, that's when you're transformed. There is, a, there is an actual physical supernatural, really, change, transformation that takes place in your physiology when you start to talk this way and believe this way. And that's why, and, and I'm saying this because I just really want, those of you who are married, if, if you're single, this still applies because this is part of your preparation if you do want to get married. But if you are married, this is, you got to realize, look, let, just assume, just to make sure that you're safe, assume every desire you have is not of God. You can start with that stance and just go, okay, Let's start from ground zero, completely rebuild who I am. How would I live? If sin weren't in the picture, if nothing that was ever done to me happened, and all I had was a complete and pure innocence and a mind that was just like the mind of Jesus, how would I live? How would I love? How would I serve my spouse? That's how you were designed to be. Understand that. Believe that. Pray like that. And <laughs> this, this really... When I first learned about this, it, it totally changed the game when it, as it came to, you know, how I was going to then go into a marriage because I just realized, like, oh, my goodness, everything I believed about being human was totally not actually human as God intended it, right? Because there's so many things that are sinful in origin desires, sin-inspired desires, and we just call them human, normal who you are when it's not. So this is important for you because of the life that you live and, and you know, the relationships in your life, marriage or not, but this is also about you understanding how then you can minister to others. I have, having this understand, understanding has revolutionized the way that I can then explain the gospel to people who are either in the LGBTQ lifestyle or are part of that agenda because it's teaching them to realize, and most of them actually understand this, I mean, most people understand if they struggle with anxiety or depression that it's not that God doesn't want them to struggle with that. And so it's realizing, and most people get it, that, you know, you're malfunctioning. That's why you experience depression. Part of your brain is not working the way God wanted it to. And it's about realizing that this is how God designed you to live, to be completely free, free from self. Because when you're free from self, nobody can steal 
any contentment or happiness or security that you have because they weren't the source of it. They can't take what they didn't give you. Right? So, now for, for a lot of people, for a lot of Christians, when you, when you first start to gain this understanding, you, you, we look in the mirror and are like, man, that just sounds like a really high standard. It sounds hard to attain, right? But if, if you just take that attitude and put it on the shelf and say this, that, I just can't do that, well, then you're never going to live in it. I don't, I don't want to call it faking it till you make it, but what I do want to say is you start talking this way, you just say to yourself, you know what? I do have the mind of Christ. I do have the nature of God. I am selfless. I do love like Jesus. And you are, you are actually physically changing the neurons in your brain when you talk that way. Proven scientific fact that how you talk actually changes your neurological makeup. And you will become that as a result of believing that you already are what God actually knows you already are in spirit. But the spiritual principle for this is in Romans 4, where it says that God, or that Abraham, against hope, in hope, believed. And then it says that he might be the father of many nations. And then it says that God, who speaks things which are not as though they are, he actually talks to you as though you already are, what most of us believe we're not. And that by speaking life to something that he knows is dead, that's what brings it back alive. So how do you bring your desires back alive again? You look at the ones that you know are not working right, and you talk to them like they already are, what God says that they should be or are spiritually. And that's how we're transformed. That's how the renewing of the mind works. And so, um, okay. This is really good stuff, you guys. <laughs> this is like, it's completely revolutionary. We got to get this because what everyone says is human is actually not is of the devil most of the time. I'm just being real. And there's, a lot of Christians, oh gosh, okay. <sighs> mm. Okay. Genesis, Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in the perfect image of God. No sin. No trace of it. They fall. From that point forward, everyone born into the world is born with a sinful nature. When we have babies, children, and those children, and they don't get what they want, they throw a fit, they cry, me, 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 I want this, I don't want to share. One years old, oftentimes younger, babies are self-oriented. It's just the way it is. Can you imagine a baby being born with no sinful nature? They're already so innocent. So if a baby's born with no sinful nature, they would be like literally, you know, the naked baby angels with the halo and the wing. They, they would be absolutely angelic beings if they didn't have a sinful nature. But we grow up in a world where that self-centered craving, the crying, the wailing, that I, the I want my way, that we so detest sometimes in children, just kind of matures into kind of an adult form and it becomes needs in marriages. It becomes, 
I deserve this, I deserve that, I should feel this way because you did this to me, he said, she said, blah, blah, blah. It is just an adult version of a crying baby who didn't get their way. It is, that's, a, that's, that's what it is. So if you got, you know, anything that we would categorize as a need for your security and contentment is not what God originally made, created in you. So cast it aside and say that is actually not human as God intended it. It's not. And that's why in Romans 8, it says that, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, like verse 2 and 3. talks about that. And essentially the point is, every human being, before they know Christ, is under a law, just like gravity, that governs their existence. That law is called sin and death, which means every human being is destined to sin and to die. Just like gravity, it befalls everyone. So it says that if you're in Christ, you have a law of the spirit of life, which frees you from the law that governs everyone else. So you, you actually are becoming a different kind of human. So human for a Christian is not supposed to be the same thing as human for everyone else. This is not to lead you into any kind of pride or religious arrogance. So don't take it that direction. The point is, human for me is supposed to look completely different for human for an unbeliever. So the things that ail them, that they believe they're victims to, should bring me to compassion and realize if I want to then inspire them to follow Jesus like I am now, I should realize I'm, I'm not designed to live with that same victimization. I'm a different kind of human. And if I live as a different kind of human, it will inspire them to realize that they're probably not actually a real human either. That they're designed to be made a different way. And th- this is the thing. Like A lot of times unbelievers will criticize Christians for letting their faith become like this religious guise that adds kind of a sense of mercy and grace that justifies the same dysfunction that they're living in and then say that we're living in too. And it's like this belief that humans are, are the same across the board, regardless of what they believe. They have the same weaknesses, the same tendencies, the same propensities. And so faith is just a coping mechanism and it's nothing real. That's, that's kind of the, the understanding. So I should understand if I'm following Jesus and he says I'm a new creation, old things have passed away and all things have become new. My flesh is not, my body is not an enemy. The Bible says that there's life in my mortal flesh because of the spirit of God who lives in me. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. So my experience of humanity is supposed to be selfless completely. And that is the new human for us. And that's what we have to believe. So if you understand that, then you got a temptation to be offended by something somebody says. You can realize this whole tendency to be offended is not me not who I was designed to be. It's not actually part of my nature anymore. And realize that you choosing to amend your ways, you choosing to walk in the love of Christ is not about religious obligation. It's not about trying to earn your way to heaven or trying to earn the approval of God. It's about you teaching yourself that you were given a different nature and you were designed to be conformed to the nature of Christ completely. And that's who you are. And so I, I, I want us to realize that the potential to walk like Christ in this life is so, so much greater than most Christians think it is. So much greater. This is not like an exclusively Jesus, son of God lifestyle that only he could walk in. I was, okay, 
this is the last thing I'll say before we close here. I was do, uh, uh, speaking as a guest in a small group at a, a college in the Twin Cities. And um, there is a, a book study from uh, Christ in the Church, which is one of books about marriage that we have on, on the shelf back there. And they're doing a book study. And so I came in to answer some questions. There was a Q&A group. And one of the questions came up that I absolutely loved. It was a great question from uh, one of the college students that is just doing really, really well, really, really cool. And the question that she asked was essentially, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And she said, so as, she said, as a future wife, should then I be able to love my husband as Christ loved the church? Is it just for husbands or is it for wives also, right? And I essentially explained the answer to her question. And then the, there is a, um, one of the employees at the college, I can't remember her exact position. Um, and there was this discussion that was started around whether humans have the ability to love as Christ loved the church. And the, the conversation started to kind of go the direction of, you know, we're only human. We can't really love like Christ loved the church. It's like a highest standard so that we're shooting for the moon, knowing we're going to miss type thing. And the conversation was just going that direction. And I mean, it was all still good, but there was just that slight, like, that doesn't sound right, you know, in my heart. I was convicted. And so then I, I spoke up and I said, you know what? The Bible says that Christ loved the whole church when he died. As, a human, as a, an individual human being, yes, you cannot love the whole church as Jesus did because you just don't have that capacity for you dying to actually save the entire world. So yes, in that sense, you can't. But he says, husbands love your wives. A husband love just your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, in the New Testament, when we are given a command, it is not the same kind of command as those of the Old Testament. In, in Romans 3, it says that God gave the law to empower sin so you would be exposed to your need for a savior. It says that the law was a ministry of death. The New Testament, the Bible says, Paul talks, says it this way in Colossians 3, it says, Beloved, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. There's a command. What does he say? I give you this command because you already are holy, chosen, and elect. So the command is given with the understanding that you already have the power to do it because it's in your nature. The Old Testament gives commands to show you you can't keep them, so you realize you need to be made new. So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he says it because he knows it is in you to do it. Otherwise, why would he give you that command? So this is about you realizing that when he makes that high standard, he's not trying to set the bar so high that you just make it further than everyone else. He's setting the bar high because in his eyes, it's not actually high anymore. It is just who you are in Christ. It is who you are. And you start to think and believe that way. And he says that husband can love his wife as Christ loved the church. And he says the result is that she'll be washed and sanctified and made without blemish and spotless. And she will actually completely in a human way, an earthly way, represent the washing of the blood and the, blood and the word of God on the church. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing 
transaction that takes place in a marriage that he says is supposed to be our reality because it's in our nature. And so that I explained this to these students, and a lot of them had never heard before that difference between Old and New Testament commands, right? And it totally changes the game as far as what you think the Christian life should be and what it can become, the potential that's in you. And it's, it's an incredible uh, revelation that totally changed my life and totally changed what I believed about marriage and totally changed the, the, the way that my marriage is functioning now. And it's just, it's just really, really cool. And so I, I want us all to just wrap this all up to look at the verse we started with, 2 Peter 1, 4. You've been, you have escaped the corruption that's in this world through lust. Lust is not in you. Selfish craving is not in you. You're a partaker of the divine nature. You understand that. What happens? You got a desire that doesn't align with that. Don't say, oh, it's just me and I'm human. Uh Uh-uh. Kick it out with your words and say, that is not me. I was designed to live this way. And do not expect anything from someone that is part of those fallen desires. And if there's ever a temptation to be hurt, offended, agitated, whatever it is, you got to cast that down too. Just like it says in 2 Corinthians 4. That is not me. Because yes, temptations to be offended are going to come. All of us experience that. We just got to realize, I don't have a right to be offended like this anymore. It's not me. It's not human. It's a while of the devil. It's a, it's a lie from the enemy. Amen? Okay, let's stand and we'll pray. Close the service. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your love, your goodness, your grace. Thank you for the divine nature that we are all partakers of as followers of Jesus. We love you.